today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Maxime Bernier, of course, uh, after uh, Twitter wars, I guess, and and, and just uh, uh, disgruntled with the Conservative Party, had decided that he is going to quit and start his own party. To talk more about that, Michael Tobe, uh, Michael Tobe is a Troy, Medi- uh, Troy Media syndicated columnist, Washington Times contributor. He is with us now. Michael, thank you so much for the time, as always. Much appreciated. I'm happy to do so, Scott. Michael, why don't we start our own political party? Is it that hard? <laughs> Good God, what, is that a challenge? Uh, <laughs> is it a challenge? Um, like, honestly, is it that easy to it, do? It, it's, a, it's actually not that hard. Actually, to, to create a little teeny tiny party, or a third party, if you wish, um, it obviously does take some work. I mean, you have to create a name, which thus far Maxime Bernier doesn't seem to have for his party. You have to obviously devise a web page, create uh, social media accounts. Um, you have to create and uh, basically uh, hire a chief financial officer. There are things you can do, and obviously it takes a little bit of work, but it's not too hard if you want to go out and create a party. But creating a party is even is less than half the battles. That's the easy part. Yeah. The hard part is actually winning seats or, yeah. or taking government. That's where it really matters, and that's why very few political parties succeed. And what Maxime Bernier is doing, I think, is it's regrettable that he's taken this move, but he's basically feeding his own ego. He just couldn't obviously handle the fact that he had lost to Andrew Scheer in the Conservative Party of Canada leadership last year. He couldn't handle the fact that he had lost by roughly about 1% of the vote, which, yes, I think for most normal people, including even those normal people, believe it or not, in politics, that is a very hard thing to take. But at the same time, if you're going to be a loyal soldier and a good politician, sometimes you have to accept the fact, like, say, Christine Elliott has accepted several times in Ontario, that even if, the, even if people choose in the party not to elect you as leader, there can still be a role for you, and that doesn't mean you can't run again. It's not impossible. Mm. Like, let's say in the 2019 federal election next year, let's say Andrew Scheer hypothetically didn't do well. Well, wouldn't that have put someone like Maxime Bernier, who finished literally neck and neck with him, in a good position to move forward the, the coming year? But no, he couldn't do it. He couldn't stand it. He had obviously got into a lot of trouble, which I'm sure we'll talk about over his various tweets about you know, issues of diversity versus more diversity, the, his issues with multiculturalism. He just went off message, and I just think that his ego could not be managed he probably got frustrated with everything, and he finally just gave up, you know, in Halifax this week. But what he's created, Scott, is, is hard to say. There was only him on the podium. There are a couple people who may be working with him, from what I understand. I know of one person anyway, and there may be a second, but that's all I know of. So whatever Maxime Bernier is planning to do, and apparently tomorrow he goes on vacation for a week, this is after he causes this brouhaha, he decides to leave the country, which is fine, but to then basically say he's incommunicado in terms of media, that he will not speak to any media organization based on either the motives or reasons behind his decision, I just think that the whole thing is rather silly and trivial. Does this say or reveal anything about what kind of leader he would have been had he got the top job? You know, that's an interesting question. and A lot of people are sort of arguing that, well, if this is the way he acted when he finished second, would he have been a great sport when he finished first? But I, I think it's also probably fair to say, Scott, that had he won, he would be obviously looking at things from a very different lens. 
you know, he would have obviously just barely beaten Andrew Scheer. He would have been in charge of the party. He could have put forward a particular agenda. Would he have started to say, discuss things like diversity, multiculturalism, and other things? It's hard to say, because obviously that scenario never happened, and it only happened here because he finished in second place. But maybe he would have acted differently, because sometimes the job defines you more than you defining the job. And had he been the leader of the Conservative Party in, say, a neck-and-neck battle with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau leading up to next year's federal election, you might have seen a different Maxime Bernier. But either way, it doesn't really matter. I think we're unfortunately seeing a part of Maxime Bernier that most people in the conservative movement in Canada knew existed and knew that he was trying to contain to some extent, which is just his, his belief that he obviously, it's an overinflated ego, uh, a belief of self-importance, a feeling that his views are better than everyone else's. Even the book that he was about to write really shows that he was just sort of going his own way with different things. So maybe it's better that we dodge this bullet. What's his objective here? Because he must know he doesn't stand a snowball's chance in hell of of making any great impact with another party. However, he could obviously sway some votes and hand the election to Justin Trudeau. Would he rather do that? I mean, it just seems that he isn't looking at the end game here. No, you're right, and it's very illogical what he's doing. Um, No matter what happens with his party, whatever he ultimately calls it, and no matter who he gets to run for it, and I would find it very hard to believe that he would get a full slate of candidates to run for him. I think he'll be lucky if he gets about half of it, give or take. And even then, I just don't know what sort of pool he would be picking from. Like, what sort of people are going to be there? Are there going to be experienced people who are going to be with him? or a lot of inexperienced people who are just seat holders or placeholders, if you'd like. The end game is also a good question, and you're quite right. There is no chance in hell that he's going to win that many seats with this party. He will obviously win his own seat. He's the king of both. This is a, 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 a riding, and some of your listeners may not know this, that not only Maxime Bernier has held, but his father, Gilles Bernier, also held as well. This is a family seat. This is an iconic family in that little neck of the woods in Quebec, and I would say that no matter what he does, he's still safe. So I'd be shocked if he lost his seat next year. But who else is going to actually win? Who would actually then vote against what is the right-leaning party of this country, the Conservative Party of Canada, for this little offshoot or this little different right-wing type of political party, a third party, shall we say, that really, yeah, it may have different points of view, it may have different values, it will obviously have different faces and different ideas behind it, but what does it really add to the equation? The Conservative Party of Canada after it reunited both the, you know, from the, progressive, the old progressive conservatives and the Canadian Alliance in 2003, over the past 15 years has built the small-c conservative alternative that many Canadians craved and desired and held government under Stephen Harper. That is the legacy that Andrew Scheer has. Andrew Scheer, aside from what some people have been saying, has done, I think, an admirable job to basically lead this party. Has it been perfect? No. Are there things he could have done better? Absolutely. There's no question about it. But even privately behind the scenes, I wouldn't be shocked if he said that too. Because there is the sort of the nature of give and take of leadership. 
So what Maxime Bernier is accomplishing is, yes, the possibility of winning a seat or two at best, his own and maybe one other, and causing the, the election to tilt back to Justin Trudeau and the Liberals in 2019. And I don't know what that actually greatly accomplishes, because people are not going to come running over to his outfit if he causes this sort of damage. And, you know, we have to wait and see if it happens, because why would they actually honor him or cherish him or respect him as a leader when he basically walked away from the party where he could have had a real impact and then just caused everything to tilt to the other side, who is supposed to be, at least in the Liberals' case, our basic political opponent? If that was to happen, does the Conservative Party learn something and change uh, direction or, or, or vision because of that? In other words, is, is Maxime Bernier a part of uh, a movement within the Conservative Party or is he an extremist within the Conservative Party? Do others have his views? Is it a typical Conservative view? Well, I mean, some of his political ideas are typical conservative views. And that, for example, the easiest one is his belief that supply management should be abolished in Canada. And I agree with that. I I feel this is the one issue that, in particular, Andrew Scheer, who I actually endorse, I'm the only columnist in Canada. It's, you know, you can check the Internet. It's really true. I'm the only one who endorsed Scheer. And it was a half-hearted one, but I did endorse him. Um, I've always felt that his position on supply management was wrong. And I know that there are a lot of conservatives who don't agree with it. And for reasons that we don't have to get into, because it's just a different road to travel, Andrew Scheer has protected the position that supply management still has a role to play in Canada. And that's something easy that Maxime Bernier can go against. And on that issue, Bernier is 100% correct. But that's not enough to build a party. And then to make the argument, as he did, in his Facebook page, stating the reasons why he didn't feel comfortable with Andrew Scheer's leader, claiming that they weren't conservative enough, didn't have conservative ideas, and weren't running or about to run a conservative campaign against Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. In, in Bernier's view, they just look like more of the same. Not only is that complete nonsense, because if you look at the conservative party platform as it currently exists, the principles and policies, it is completely different than the Liberals. And I think that the frustration is more so, at least in Bernier's mind, that Andrew Scheer is trying to tow a similar road that Stephen Harper did, which is, yes, to have small-c conservative values and ideas, but to ensure that it encompasses the entire country, that you just don't pick out little blocks here and there. And yes, supply management could definitely work as one of those issues if Andrew Scheer chose to, but most of the other issues that Andrew Scheer is in favor of which is reducing taxes, the size of government, helping families, and ensuring that we have the best quality type of health care and education for Canadians, both with public and private means, so to speak, which I hate to break it to people, exist in both of those, uh, both of those areas. That's really what conservatism stands for in Canada today, and that's what Andrew Scheer represents. Okay, so I so don't re- know what Maxime Bernier is doing. I don't know what he hopes to accomplish. And, I, and really, as I said, and I've said it a few times now, other than just satisfying his own ego, this whole thing is a complete trap. So uh, this all happened prior to or heading into the convention. Many were wondering how Scheer was going to reign in Bernier if, in fact, none of this did happen. Right. Uh, obviously, Bernier, I, I, you know, takes the offshoot and I think hands them a favor by doing this. That being said, does this create divisiveness within the party? Does this unite the party? He's gone. Let's move on. What does this do to the convention? 
Well, look, the convention's still going on, so we have to wait a couple days to see. But right now, I think the easiest thing to say is that at least Andrew Scheer is breathing a heavy sigh of relief. Not that he was scared of Maxime Bernier, far from it. He just basically knew that this was going to be a problem going all the way into next year's federal election. And, it, you know, every time that Maxime Bernier spoke as a member of the Conservative Party or an MP for the Conservative Party, even though he wasn't sitting in caucus and didn't have any committee co-chairs or co-chairs, he still spoke for the party. So every time he said something different than Andrew Scheer, like he was doing on Twitter, talking about diversity, multiculturalism, etc., it obviously caused problems for the Conservative Party and Scheer in general because they had to keep saying, no, that's not what we represent, that's just one member's opinion. Now at least, with, with Maxime Bernie out of the way, that doesn't have, you know, you don't have to worry about that anymore. He can go off and run with his little party, do whatever he does, you know, get as many people as he can to run for him, and will probably end up being nothing. I don't even think he will be, as you suggested, a spoiler of any sort, because I don't think he has this broad-based appeal. I just don't think a lot of people are going to leave the Conservative Party, and that includes party activists, it could include... Uh, current or former MPPs, MLAs, cabinet ministers, whomever, and either run for Maxime Bernier's new party or work for him. I just don't see it happening. So in the grand scheme of things, I, as I said before, I really don't know what he's accomplished here except to make a life a little bit easier for the Conservative Party of Canada. And now Andrew Scheer can actually focus, which I think is the good thing, on the campaign ahead and knowing full well that the party is united for the most part behind most of his policies. You know, no leader can get every single member of the caucus to support every single policy he or she represents. Mm -hmm. But as long as the bulk are covered, which I think they are, that's going to help them. You think about, you know, a, a lot of people say that no one knows who Andrew Scheer is yet. Uh, at least they recognize Maxime Bernier, you know, and, and who he is. You think of the people that are on the sidelines right now for various reasons, maybe part of the Harper regime, whatever. The Peter McKay's, John Baird's, uh, Rana Ambrose. Do they have the right guy? Is the party convinced they have the right guy? Are there questions on that? As far as I know, the party is convinced they have the right guy, and they're not. Is it better to have a new guy than someone like that that's attached to the old regime? Is it better to start fresh this way? Well, how fresh can you start? If you look at the people who actually ran in 2017, many of them were attached to the old Stephen Harper government, in one way, shape, or form, or another. Andrew Scheer and Maxime Bernier both served under it, even though Mr. Scheer was the House speak, you know, was the Speaker of the House. But he still sat as a Conservative MP. That's how he gets in there in the first place. So I don't think it necessarily matters. And I certainly think having more experience rather than less in federal politics is a good thing. And hoping that somebody from the outside, as you mentioned, people who've either left and gone on to the private sector, like Baird and Ambrose, or people who, say, are in the various provincial legislatures or even premiers right now, I don't think necessarily that's the route to success. I think the route to success has to be having a good leader, getting behind a good, uh, pol- some good policy positions, and ensuring that there is party loyalty behind both the party and the leader. Right now, I think that the biggest blight on the system, and that was Bernier, is out of the picture. And it's interesting also to note that in a lot of people who supported him, including the fellow who basically ran his campaign for leadership, Corey Tonight, have all sort of come out and said over the last 24 hours 
that, you know, they like the guy, they find this very unfortunate, etc., but they, they're not going with him. They're not walking with him. They don't agree with his position, and they don't agree with his, his commentary that the Conservative Party is something that it's not. If Maxime Bernier believes that, Scott, that's completely up to him. I'm sure one of these days he'll come on your show, you'll interview him after he comes back from his vacation, and he'll tell you probably a lot of the things that are contrary to say what I'm saying or what others are saying about him. I'm not shocked that this happened. I really am not. Maxime Bernier has sort of marched to the beat of his own drummer for a long time, and finally he decided to take his drum and his drumsticks and went somewhere else. All right, only got a little, a few seconds left. Do Canadians care about this? This too inside politics. It's very inside baseball, to be fair. I, I know I won't take too long on it. I think people, though, are intrigued because when you see someone who has been, shall we say in the last year, a fairly important figure, at least as far as the news is concerned, leave a political party, you start to wonder, well, are other people coming with them? You know, is this going to be a big political outfit? Is this going to become the beginning of another break of the Canadian conservative movement? You know, are we looking at, say, another reform party or something like that? But I don't think it's anything of the sort. I think, if anything, we may be looking at another trillium party in Ontario, or the smallish uh, B.C. Conservatives, for example. A little party with a bit of a rudder that might win a seat or two or three here and there, but really isn't going to change the perspective of the election or even the outcome of an election. And I think that's all we're basically looking at right now. So do Canadians really care? A lot of that is up to Bernier and what he does with his his party, quote-unquote, from here in. I think, though, that most people will forget this pretty fast and realize that if they want an alternative to Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, it's very simple. It's Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives. Do you think uh, Maxime Bernier will appreciate you using his name and the term Little Rudder in the same sentence? The term what? Little Rudder. Yeah, I don't care whether he appreciates it or not. <laughs> I'm look, kidding, look, Michael. Look, look, look what he's done. I mean, he. I mean, this was unnecessary to do, Scott. And look, I have no trucker trade with Bernie. I've actually had very little dealings with him in my life. And I think this may be part of the reason why, because I still remember what happened to him in 2006 with that former girlfriend of the Hells, yeah. Hells Angels bikers. Yeah. And those, all those missing documents that sat in her apartment for weeks. This is not a man that I have trusted in terms of becoming a leader of a political party for 12 years. I did say at the time, very quickly, that yes, if Bernier had been elected last year, I would have supported him, as I would have supported most of the candidates who ran last year as well. But after what he's done here, I'm glad that I backed Andrew Scheer. I'm glad that I endorsed Andrew Scheer. And I don't really care what happens to Maxime Bernier from here in because he has proven to be disloyal. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Of course, we've been talking about Maxime Bernier leaving uh, the Conservative Party to start his own. One of the reasons uh, he gave for uh, leaving was the Conservative view of supply management, which, of course, we have in the dairy industry and, of course, part of the NAFTA agreement. We've heard uh, Donald Trump uh, speak of this many times. What exactly is supply management? How does it work? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time again. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So what is a supply management system? How does it work? Um, I published uh, two papers on this for the McDonald laurie Institute. I was very interested in the subject, partly because I grew up in the uh, 1960s 
on a farm in eastern Ontario surrounded by dairy farmers before supply management existed. Uh, I wasn't on a dairy farm, but I was on a farm surrounded by dairy farmers, and I knew tons, and I worked and went to school with dairy farmers' children. Um, dairy, uh, the supply management system is only practiced in one country on the planet Earth. Out of 200 countries of the UN, only one country does it. It's Canada. Secondly, it only applies to dairy and chickens. It does not apply to beef. It does uh, farmers, hog farmers. Uh, it does not apply to grain farmers. It doesn't apply to vegetables. Let me interrupt there. Why is it just these industries? Why not other? Okay, that's where I'm, I'm now. I'll unpack it. The the dairy uh, farming uh, sector um, was uh, back in the '60s and '70s was very very large. Uh, it was there were over 150,000 dairy farmers in the late 1960s. And the Liberals came to power, and they've been concentrated uh, throughout our history in two provinces, Ontario and Quebec. So they weren't distributed equally across the country. There's a smattering of dairy farmers elsewhere, but they're overwhelmingly in eastern Ontario and Quebec. And that allowed them to focus their lobbying on just those ridings, which gave them a lot of political power. Pierre Elliott Trudeau and his, and his uh, cabinet introduced supply management in 1971. Okay, what is it? It is the management of the supply or the production of the product. And that may sound very benign, but think about it. In just about every industry that we have, you do not go to the government and say, please may I sell hamburgers to people that want to buy hamburgers. You don't go to the government and say, please may I have your permission and pay you money to sell T-shirts to people at the Bay or ties, or shoes, or carrots, or anything. With supply management, what they're doing, and I I don't want to sound inflammatory, some people may not like this, but conceptually, it's very similar to the model of the Soviet Union. How so? The Soviet Union and supply management starts by saying, we're going to limit all product in that sector from outside the country from coming in. The Soviets did it by simply sending out an edict saying you may not import goods from the West without our permission. What we've done in Canada is we set up a tariff of 275% on all foreign milk coming into Canada. What does that do? It effectively bans foreign competition from coming into Canada. Now you don't have to worry about foreign competitors undercutting what you're about to do. What are you about to do? Parliament then passed a law setting up a milk marketing agency, and the provinces passed parallel legislation, so both the Fed and the provinces cooperated, to essentially set up a cartel, not that different from OPEC, only with one difference. It was legally binding. It was not, it was not voluntary. To become a dairy farmer in Canada under the supply management system, you were given a permit, a quota, and told you can produce X thousands of liters of milk annually. You may not sell one liter more. You may not export it if you have too much. You have to pour it down the drain, literally. You must destroy it. You are not allowed to sell it privately or on the side. And what they did was they then jacked the price up approximately double the actual market price of what it would have been without supply management. This has been studied by StatsCan, by the OECD, by me, by other uh, professors who've published on this. So what they did is you first limit the supply, 
by by artificially limiting the supply by keeping out foreign competition. Secondly, you then set up quotas. You take the total size of the market, what you estimate it to be, and then divide it up by the total number of farmers, and you assign them quotas or licenses. They're like a taxi license. Yeah. And you produce this much. And they, that's right. And those licenses become very valuable. Today, the quota, the dairy quota license, is vastly more expensive than the dairy cow that makes the milk. And, and so what it does is it keeps up the price much, much higher than they would otherwise get in an in a re- un- unregulated market that's like all the other markets. The government doesn't regulate you know, the number of cars that are made every year. So what happens, what happens to the dairy industry if they pull supply management? Well, what it, let me back up. I'm going to answer your question. I'm not going to duck it. Um, what's happened with supply management, because they've often said it's been there to protect the, the dairy farmer, I have argued in my papers and, and in my media that it has been absolutely destructive of the dairy industry. 150,000 dairy farmers in 1971. Today, 9,000. 141,000 dairy farmers have been essentially driven out of dairy farming. Why? Because the quotas are very, very expensive. Young farmers coming in not only have to buy the land, not only have to buy the cows that produce the milk, then you have to spend enormous amounts of money to get the quota or the license or permission to produce the milk. And so what's happened is fewer and fewer people have gone in, the older farmers uh, leave, and they are not replaced. So we, the shrunk, we've downsized. We didn't downsize the children. Uh, you know, as that movie said, you know, we've downsized the children, honey. No, we've downsized the dairy industry dramatically. To answer your question, what will happen? Um, I, it will continue, I believe, to shrink and contract as farming becomes much more capital intensive in other words a lot less labor a lot more capital using uh, expensive machineries and expensive technologies um, and uh, so you will see probably a, a continued decline you'll also see some american milk coming in um, some people say oh my god we're going to have dangerous milk well first off the americans aren't dying left right and center from bad milk my sister's an american for 35 years and she raised her family on american milk and they're healthier than horses um, but but secondly the um, the the food the uh, all food in Canada, including milk and anything we ingest or drink, is the substances they can put into the food or the milk or the fluid, is regulated by Health Canada and is inspected by the CFIA, whether it's a foreign competitor producer or a domestic. So in other words, we have one uh, system for food safety in Canada that applies to everybody, whether they're Canadian farmers. Mm-hmm or foreign farmers. In fact, we import a very substantial amount of food uh, into Canada annually. So it will be a slight rebalancing. I mean, the 9,000 dairy farmers are contracting, as I said. They're down to about 20 ridings, federal ridings, according to Martha Hall Findlay, who's a former Liberal cabinet minister who published a separate study on supply management. And she was saying that they don't have the clout or the influence that they had back in the 70s when they really were very, very powerful. But today, they're down there. Their influence has declined to about uh, 20 ridings where there's a number. Those 9,000 uh, dairy farmers are distributed mostly over about 20 ridings in eastern Ontario and Quebec. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks. All right, let's bring in Bruce Muirhead. He is a professor, associate vice president of external research, University of Waterloo, and is with us now. Bruce, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. It's a pleasure. Is it time to move on from supply management in Canada? 
No, I don't think so. And I heard some of what your previous caller was talking about, and I couldn't disagree more with him. If you look at a, an example of a country that deregulated dairy in 2001, which is Australia, that's what Canadian dairy would become. The Australian dairy industry is reeling from shock after shock. Um, your previous guest talked about the number of farmers in Canada who have left the industry. It's far, far worse in Australia, which is a completely deregulated system. And Australian milk is cheaper than Canadian milk, but it's only because the big supermarkets have driven down the price, which put many, many farmers out of business, in fact, into penury for the most part, where they're marginal producers and they're doing their best to hang on, as two farmers told me when I interviewed about 50 of them there. So, no, I think in a commodity like dairy, which is very, it's not traded much on international markets, only about 7% of total global production of dairy is traded internationally. In a commodity like that, you can satisfy the domestic market and a supply-managed system which addresses the issue of overproduction, which your previous guest didn't really talk about, um, is a major, major benefit to both farmers and consumers. If we still have to have supply management, does that mean we have too many farmers, too much product? No, we absolutely don't have too many farmers. In fact, uh, the average dairy farm in Canada is about um, 80 cows, more or less. So that means that um, 80 cows divided by, as your previous guest said, 9,000 farmers is enough to satisfy the Canadian market. The problem in other jurisdictions like Australia, New Zealand, and in particular the United States, which of course is the source of so much anxiety now about supply management, um, is that they have far too many farmers producing far too much good, far too much commodity, and dairy in this case. And I know that um, Ian Lee talked about just dumping, Canadian farmers dumping milk. What they dump doesn't even begin to compare with the volume that American farmers dump on fields. They use it as manure for fields, you know, or fertilizer for fields. They dump it in lagoons. About 100 million gallons a year of American milk are simply dumped by American farmers because they produce far too much, which is a major waste of a, a precious resource. So supply management actually works very, very well for both consumers and for producers. And I'll just talk, mention very briefly about price as well, which I know a lot of people focus on. I pay about $4.29 for four liters of milk. I actually don't think that that's out of whack with the uh, cost of production that, um, that Canadian dairy farmers assume. Um, in the United States, if you look at American Bureau of Labor Statistics, so these are official statistics, numbers calculated or collected and calculated by the American Bureau of Labor, they show that American milk, when normalized for um, our four-liter gallon and also the exchange rate, American milk, um, based on Bureau of Labor calculations, is actually more expensive than Canadian milk. So when you buy, say, a Canadian consumer buys um, $1.50 a gallon milk at the, at the border Walmart or the border Costco, that's the farmer that's providing a subsidy to that consumer because the farmer is not producing that commodity for $1.50 a gallon. It might cost them $3 a gallon to produce that, and they're taking a loss. And that's why when you look at sort of the numbers of farmers that are going down in terms of numbers, thousands and thousands and thousands of American farmers have simply left the, left the dairy industry um, because they simply cannot make ends meet. Uh, why... Why not have these sort of regulations on more farming products? Why is it just this industry? Oh, well, it's, we have um, five commodities in Canada. They're eggs as well. About 3% of total global production of eggs is traded internationally, so gain a very small percentage. And also poultry. 
um, is covered. So turkey, chicken, and pullets are covered by um, supply management as well. So the, the quick answer to that is that you can only cover commodities with supply management which don't trade internationally or don't trade much internationally. Right. Um, if you look at canola or wheat, you know, it's simp <laughs> you couldn't have a supply managed um, sector for, say, canola or wheat because it is a global industry and we trade um, huge volumes of both canola and wheat internationally. So a big, big percentage of that market is traded internationally, unlike all the supply managed commodities it's, um, you know, that simply wouldn't work um, to do commodities where, which rely upon international markets. Pork's another one. Pig farmers every once in a while think about supply management, but it just doesn't suit the contours of their industry. So they simply can't do it because it's an international um, market and a large percentage of total global production is traded internationally. This, the sectors covered by supply management, I know most about dairy and eggs, um, those sectors are um, not traded much internationally. Every single country, more or less, satisfies its own um, requirements, or the ones that I study anyway, satisfy its own requirements for dairy and eggs, and whatever is left over, they look around for external export markets. We don't, of course, but um, say the Americans do, the, the Euro European Union and Australia and New Zealand, Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, they all do the same kind of thing, but everybody satisfies their own market with their own milk. How did we get here, and what's different now? Why did the U.S. initiate, because this is obviously a big piece of NAFTA, and we've certainly right. heard Trump spout off about this. Why did the U U.S. initially like this or agree to it? What's different now? Um, well, it's a Canadian um, program, so there are lots of programs that we don't like about the United States, but we don't insist they get rid of them. And I think the Americans were quite happy to um, contemplate Canadian supply management. You know, in the U.S. sector, for example, peanuts, cotton, and sugar, they're highly, highly protected. And oddly enough, when you look at what the Americans are doing with respect to Canada's system of supply management, about 8% of our total market is open. So, you know, we can import up to 80% of um, total Canadian production into Canada, basically duty-free at very low rates of duty. In the case of the United States, it's about 2% of their market. So here they're talking about supply management when, in effect, they have also closed off their market to external competitors. You can't export milk to the United States. You can't export milk to the U.S. beyond the 2% tariff rate quota that they allow. So it's um, one of those things where it's, um, it's almost like the Americans are saying, do as I say, not as I do, because they're worse transgressors on this issue than we are. They might not have a supply-managed system, but they keep out foreign imports um, to the greatest extent possible. So uh, I guess part of the, my problem with this is that the hypocrisy of the American position is absolutely stunning. They want us to open up our dairy market, but I am sure that it's not at all in their um, sights that they would open up their dairy market equally to C Canadian exports if we ever did get rid of supply management in dairy, which I hope we never do. Uh, playing devil's advocate here, what will happen if all of a sudden they stop the supply management in dairy? Is this not supply and demand? Does this mean we have too many dairy farmers, even though the amount is shrinking? Um, that might be the case, because it, what happens in the United States now is that about 80% of total production in the United States is done by farms with more than 1,000 cows. So they'd have 15,000 cow operations. They're called combined 
animal feeding operations actually in the United States. They're CAFOs and the Union of Concerned Scientists in the United States. These are the guys who deal with the doomsday clock and that sort of thing. The Union of Concerned Scientists has actually produced a paper on CAFOs in the U.S. and how destructive they are for a whole bunch of reasons. So what would happen absolutely in the Canadian situation if we got rid of supply management is that we would lose these quaint, you know, sort of bucolic, often very nice-looking 80-cow farms on average, and we'd move into the 1,000 to 5,000-cow range, which would be entirely destructive of rural sustainability. They would have massive environmental impacts, which, of course, they've discovered in the United States as well. And probably, if that happens, we also would have to move into a, a system of subsidy by government, direct subsidy by government. And, of course, the Americans do that as well. As you may remember, in the latest $12 billion um, payment that has been authorized by Congress as a result of Trump's trade war with China in particular, um, dairy is, is um, subsumed under this $12 billion. And because they've lost some market share in China, they're going to get payments from the federal government. There are also a myriad of other payments that um, the federal government in the United States gives to dairy farmers. So if we lost supply management, which doesn't take a cent of government money at all, we would absolutely have to support dairy farmers if we wanted any to compete um, internationally, which is what the Americans do and what the Europeans do as well. Those countries that don't provide subsidies, in the case of New Zealand, actually New Zealanders pay far more for their milk than we do, even though they're the world's largest exporter of um, dairy products, and the Australians might pay less, but their farmers are really, as I mentioned at the very beginning, and in very, very um, difficult shape. So it would be, a, I would think, a horrendous development. Um, we like the way countryside is. It doesn't take a cent of government money. It also helps to preserve the smaller farm. What about, hang on, I'm going to interrupt you here because we're short of time. What about uh, uh, supply management versus the auto sector in the grand scheme of NAFTA? Uh, uh, can you see that being sacrificed for the auto sector? Oh, I, I really don't know. You know, I think it's, um, they're both equally very, very difficult choices. Clearly, people would look at the auto sector and say, look, we've, you know, it's much more important to the Canadian economy than, um, than the dairy sector is, and that's true. But at the same time, you can't eat cars. You know, you can't drink cars. So ultimately, dairy will become very, very important. What your previous caller did mention was the, the thought of getting a little bit of American milk. I interviewed about 50 Australian dairy farmers over the past couple of years, and one of the things almost every single one of them mentioned when we talked about supply management was that in Australia, they didn't have a big brother south of them looking to supply them to basically swamp us with their milk. That also would happen. You know, we, All right, I've got to cut you off there, Bruce. Bruce Muirhead with us, Professor, Associate Vice President of External Research, University of Waterloo. Bruce, thanks for the insight. Much appreciated. Thanks. been a pleasure to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to a global study, there is absolutely no safe level of alcohol to drink. I'm sorry to spoil your weekend. Or as you're heading into it. There's been tons of studies, countless studies, saying the pros and cons. Oh, if you do a little red wine, good for the heart, this, that, the other. Apparently, that's just all poppycock. At the end of the day, uh, there is no safe level of alcohol to drink. So they say. Let's bring in uh, Anne Dowsett-Johnston. She is the author of Drink, the Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. And Anne is with us now. Anne, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
Nice to be with you. I love the title of your book, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. What is the different relationship between uh, men and women when it comes to alcohol? Well, given the way we look at how women drink and how men drink in our society, meaning we stigmatize women a lot more, I think, when they're drinking more, um, women tend to hide their drinking. They tend to, yes, drink in their book clubs, but they tend to, if they get into trouble, drink alone. Um, a guy may head to a sports bar and make new friends, uh, different friends than he had before. But women tend to make a secret ritual, and that's what my title is referring to. Uh, is one more difficult than to treat than the other because of that? That's a really good question. I mean, typically more men go for treatment for alcohol problems than women go. That's partly because women usually feel they can't leave children. And so we do see most treatment centers taking more men than women. Um, that doesn't mean there isn't a big need for women's treatment. There's a huge need in our province, and that's something we need to address. This study is interesting because it's saying that you know, that old saw that one glass of red wine will be good for you, maybe two will be better, is just not true. Why are we getting conflicting reports over the years? Because it seems this has been an ongoing discussion that uh, obviously I think everybody knows if you drink too much, that's not good for you. But there certainly has been uh, lots of people who have said or studies that have said, you know, one glass of whether it's red wine, this or the other. Red wine seems to be the miracle worker for some reason. They seem to, uh, it, it seems to get the majority of the attention. Uh, of the attention. But how, how come we have so many conflicting studies and, and what makes this one different? The new studies, the ones that started coming out last year, were starting to say, no, not good for you, and not only that, big connection with cancer, and not just liver cancer, but throat cancers, brain cancers, mouth cancers, and this is something that people just don't want to know. In fact, it's thought that only 5% of Canadian women understand that 15% of breast cancer cases are caused by um, alcohol imbibing. So I just think this is um, a very clear story. Follow the low-risk drinking guidelines and you'll be fine. What do we know about the relationship to alcohol consumption and cancers? We know that there's a higher connection that we believed before. We know that 5% of cancers are caused by alcohol. That's much higher than anybody believed. And specific cancer is even higher than that. Uh, we've often heard, as I mentioned, the whole red wine thing. How does that come about? Um, uh, is there absolutely no benefit to this? I mean, obviously, that's what this study says. But is that accurate? Yep, that was disproved about three years ago by Jurgen Rehm and a team of researchers at CAMH. And published, and we just don't want to know that. We like to think that a glass of red wine is as good for you as vitamin D or dark chocolate. Uh, uh, <laughs> dark chocolate? Uh-oh, are we going there too? <laughs> <laughs> is this about disease or is it injury? Because, again, I, I've read as parts of this study that injury plays a big part of it too. You can get yourself in, I guess, precarious situations if you've been imbibing. How much of a factor is that in all of this? 
certainly if you're younger, um, injury is a big deal, but disease is also a huge deal. Alcohol is associated with more than 200 diseases and cancers. This is just not a great news story, and it doesn't mean, as I say, that you shouldn't drink. It means that you shouldn't look to drinking as something good for your health. Will we see, now that it appears as newer evidence comes out, the tide may be changing, are we going to hear more on this, more information like this to reinforce this opinion? I think we're going to, and I think it's going to be interesting with all the news there is on marijuana and opioids if we'll actually pay attention to this news. I don't think it's news that most people want to hear. Uh, are we looking to those other drugs um, and, and, and such as a replacement for this? How big a problem will those become? We've certainly be known what's happened with, with opioids and such, but specifically in cannabis, as that has become legalized recreationally. What are your thoughts on that? That's a really good question. I just came back from Massachusetts where it is legalized, and you could really notice the difference in that culture. I, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. But I think certainly the uh, liquor industry is worried that the cannabis industry is going to eat into its profits. Is one any better for you than the other? Because, again, like alcohol, you, you know, there's this idea that the, the glass of red wine is good for you. Uh, since cannabis is being used for medicinal purposes, are you worried that, that your message is lost in the sauce here? Yeah, I think the message is lost, and I think it will be lost. I think the biggest message that people might take away from this interview is that low-risk drinking guidelines are... 10 drinks a week for a woman and 15 for a man. And if you can drink within that safe uh, guideline, then good for you. Uh, smoking, we've seen habits change there and, and, and behavior and such. Um, what's the difference here? Why are we not seeing the same thing with alcohol or, or any of these other drugs? I mean, we, again, we're certainly seeing it with opioids now. Uh, that's certainly front and center. But but why, why, why not the same here with alcohol? I think, you know, with smoking, we had secondhand smoke. And there have been many people who've tried to make the same connection with the harms from, to others from alcohol, um, violence, etc., it just hasn't taken off with readership or listenership. Uh, so I just don't think we're going to see a secondhand drinking um, connection the way we did with tobacco. Right. So it's not just the people that were using, it was the people that were affected or around them. That was the big deal. Uh, is, al- is consumption of alcohol on the rise? It because is because in various we age group we do hear um, that you know especially from the alcohol industries that 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 sales have have uh, pretty much leveled off. Yeah, and we're seeing that very young people are not drinking at the same level as they did five ten years ago. What does that say? Why is that? Do you think? Do you think there? Do you think this is an education component that they're realizing it's not necessarily as good for you as someone would have thought? I don't know. I've been on many Canadian campuses where drinking hasn't changed one bit. And I think we still know that people are not slowing down in their 20s or 30s or 40s. Why are teenagers not um, drinking? Uh, I'd be curious about cannabis. So, so you just think they're going from one to the other? I don't know. I mean, that, hmm. that is a million-dollar question. 
Why are we consuming so much? What what's different now? There's less advertising in regard to this. Why are we why are we consuming more? I think the message is really clear. It's how we relax, it's how we reward, it's how we celebrate as a culture. You know, when we look at the average, 79.5% of Canadians drink 15 and over. Um, it's a number in the 50% range if you look at the United States. We really like our alcohol. Uh does this change the way we have been treating people with issues? Uh, I know there is some change in 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 the thought process in the sense that, you know, it was always the addiction first and then what caused it second. Are we looking more into why this is happening as opposed to trying to get people to stop it without figuring out the root cause? That's a great point. I think that we are. I think we're a lot more aware of mental health issues and the fact that people medicate mental health issues such as depression and anxiety and burnout and stress with alcohol. And in fact, it's often the easiest thing to reach for. Are we learning that that are are we learning that's what we're doing? Are we accepting that's what we're doing? Certainly do we understand do we understand why we're doing it? That's a really really good question. I don't think so. I think we tend to see wine as just another part of the food group, you know, a wonderful meal, wine that goes with it. It's a, you know, a, a gesture of being affluent and successful, and I don't think anyone's connecting the dots to this kind of study. Will our uh, new love affair, it appears, with cannabis, will this change the way we feel about alcohol? And will alcohol feel change the way we feel about cannabis? Or as in some, you know, certainly if you're an advocator of cannabis, you, you refuse to draw any connection between the two at all. I think the consumers are two different groups. I could be wrong. Um, time will tell on this one, and that's not a great answer, but I, I really don't have a crystal ball. Are you concerned as we move forward with uh, the legalization of cannabis? I think we haven't smoothed out all the knots on this uh, subject, and I think people are staking you know, big amounts of money, investments, etc., I'm hoping that people will smoke. I don't know. I just don't know. Does this change depending upon what part of the world you are in? Uh, are other How are other countries handling this? How do we compare to them? Well, I think other countries on, on drinking um, treat drinking very differently. And uh, Canada is in the top 50% internationally. And we are not showing any signs of being disinterested in alcohol. In fact, I think the whole mummy drinking culture, women and wine culture, is only on the rise. Hmm. Um, comparing us to other countries, perhaps European countries, where it's more socially acceptable to, uh, to have a, a drink with dinner or socializing or such, or maybe I'm wrong in that stereotype, uh, certainly, uh, you know, having wine for people who are perhaps uh, younger than uh, than the legal limit. Is there a difference between that and, say, in North America, more binge-type drinking? You know, I've spoken to Italian mothers who say they have the same concerns as we do in North America, which is mm. that people are drinking, young people are drinking at a higher level than they used to. 
certainly France um, in the past 20 years has taken drinking and liver disease very, very seriously, changing how they marketed alcohol, forbidding anything, any lifestyle advertising of alcohol. So I think we live with a bit of a myth here in North America that if you're Mediterranean, you can handle it. Does it matter what we're drinking, whether it's wine, beer, spirits, what have you? I think the only thing you can say about beer is we don't live in a culture other than beer where we measure, you know, a glass of wine can be three ounces and it can be nine ounces. Whereas if you're drinking beer, you know you've had a beer, you know you've had two beers, etc. So if you're looking at the low risk drinking guidelines, it's a little easier to count. You know how often you're in a restaurant and they just top up your glass before it's half empty. And do you really end up knowing what you're consuming? I would argue no. Is this resonating with Canadians? How do you think they'll accept this news? I've spoken to a lot of people who've read this study in the last 24 hours and are really curious about it. Um, I think people do want to look after their health. But we don't typically think of alcohol. We think of other drugs. And if you ask Canadians what causes the most damage, they will certainly say illicit drugs, not alcohol. And that's just, you know, the opposite of what is true. Getting back to treating this, what can we learn from this? How does this help us treat it? How have we improved in our strategies to treat this? I think the biggest thing we've done in the past 10 years is come up with low risk drinking guidelines. And I think the biggest flaw is that most Canadians don't understand what those are. If people understood what a low risk drinking guideline is, similar to having a conversation about your calories or your how to do the downward dog, you would be able to um, measure what you drank, think about what you were drinking and look at it a little differently. We just don't do that as a culture. So what's the solution here? My how do we how do we change the thinking? <laughs> that again is a million dollar question. We have really you know fallen for alcohol advertising and alcohol advertising is very persuasive. If you drink the right drink, you will be with the right crowd of friends at the beautiful cottage or end up with the perfect mate. <laughs> is it alcohol or is it that we're just too stressed out? We're not paying enough attention to the causes. I would argue that we're too stressed out. We've turned into a culture that's chained to our phones. We work like crazy. And I think the biggest issue here is people are essentially good. They pay their taxes. They're good parents. They work hard. And no one is going to tell them what to do on a Friday or Saturday night. Hmm. What do you want to take, what do you want the average Canadian to take away from this study, especially as it might be shocking them compared to other studies? Just to have an honest conversation with themselves and with those they love about what consumption means. And lowest drinking guidelines are really simple, 10 to 15 measured drinks, depending on whether you're male or female per week. And it's something we should begin to acculturate ourselves to. Do you think we are getting that message? I mean, the fact that alcohol, they say alcohol sales are down in this country or leveled off. Do you think we're understanding this? 
No, I don't. I think this is, um, you see that LCBO profits go up. I think that this is um, something that we're totally acculturated to. And I think it would take an awfully big change in our society for us to change how we drink. What about, uh, like, cigarette smoking? Should we go after this the way we did with that? And, you know, the packaging and because and, now if someone smokes in front of you, it's like you're looking at them like they got a square head. Uh, can, can, we, can, we, can we do the same thing with alcohol consumption? I think it would be great if uh, alcohol um, bottles were labeled with what a standard drink is. People could understand, you know, it's X ounces of this or Y ounces of that. I think standard drink labeling is the way to go. We label every other food with calories and um, all sorts of information on ingredients, and I think it's the way of the future. And Dowsett Johnston has been with us, author of Drink, the Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. And thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks a lot. According to a global study, there is absolutely no level, safe level, of alcohol to drink. It's in the past, oh, one glass of wine, red wine, this, that, the other. No, apparently the latest studies that are coming out saying uh, no such thing, no safe level. Have yourself a great weekend. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.